0: or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything Is Personal. All right, so today... I'm going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, I'm going to lift up the curtain and I'm going to show everybody what I normally do. And I'm going to do it differently. As my guest uh, just said, jazz, who I'm a big fan of. So this will be more jazz. So usually I do a lot of research on the guests. And uh, one of my mentors for interviewing is Howard Stern. And you, and for those who don't know, Howard not only does research or did it for years, he got a whole staff of research. So his interviews are on point. I usually do that too without a staff. But this time around, there were so many things that would take me in different directions about our guest. That's why I thought, you know what? Let's see if there's, because there's not a straight line journey. Let's see where we can end up by having more of an improvisational jazz moment. So I want to introduce our guest, Mr. Yarrow Kubrin with no title. And I'll leave it at that. And the reason why is because all oh my guests so are the CEO of this. Or see, let's talk about Yarrow. And you know, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it, Brother So, uh, how and I asked you how you want to be introduced. And you said, however. So I just introduced you by your name, but I found first of all. You have such an interesting background. There's a lot of parallels between my background and yours, real estate-wise and everything else. So I wanted to, first of all, you started talking about your name. Let's let's talk about your name. You were mentioning Belarus or give me some, uh, some background on that.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, my last name is Kubrin. And as far as I know, and, you know, I didn't Google this, but I get it through the cousins and the great uncle who thinks of himself as the unofficial family historian. You know, that spelling, when people showed up at Ellis Island, they would say, what's your name? And these people didn't understand English. And they thought they said, where are you from? So they said Cobrin, which was this shteto, or this little village in Belarus. And then everybody who came through Ellis Island with the same misspelling of that name, you know, that were related. Like we have these stories of like walking up to someone in a, you know, in a hotel in New York and they're playing piano and it says the same spelling of their name. And turns out, second cousins, they're related. And, you know, so we're, we're, we're clan. Um, but it's K U B R I N. I've also met some people who are K O B R I N. And it turns out their family was from the same village, not the same family, but, you know, Ellis Island and the misspellings, right? They didn't have spell check as you were immigrating a hundred and some odd years ago. So, um, my first name, though, I'm named after a medicinal herb or a flower. And that flower has a history across the world of being, medicinal and significant within uh certain cultures and uh in indigenous tribes uh the arl flower was called the warrior's compress and it was used uh, to treat wounds uh uh, uh, achilles was dipped in a boiling vat of herbs that boiling vat of herbs made him invincible but for his uh, uh achilles tendon his ankle where he was being held by his mother, that boiling bad herb was the yarrow flower. And so that's why the scientific name for the yarrow flower is Achillea millifolia, which stands for Achilles flower. And then you go all the way over to the east and you have the Chinese philosophy of I Ching, which is based on this uh, the, this, this um, philosophy of randomness. And they used to throw the yarrow stalks and they would see the way they fell and they would interpret that. And so really I'm a byproduct so much of like my era and my and my, my, the geography, right. I was born at home two blocks off of hate street to hippie parents. My dad was into Chinese herbs and my mom is a horticulturalist and, and has taught, you know, uh, plants at, you know, at a college level. Right. So what I think is funny though, is when I met my wife, she was named after a flower. And so of course, naturally our, our, our son and daughter also uh, have botanical names,
1: um, it's it's great, but so have you ever done like a uh, ancestry or a DNA test to find out like? So
2: uh, I, I I have a uh, you know uh, this self uh, appointed sort of family historian, and you know my dad's side they were in Pittsburgh, my mom's side uh, was you know New York, New Jersey. I've never done one of, like the twenty three and me's. Um I've I've done a little genetic testing for health purposes, but that, that might be a little later on in the in the conversation, but it was interesting to me because uh I, I love the idea of not being titled, right? I'm not banging the drum for a particular company, a particular service. I'm not so tightly identified with a with a certain entity or business uh that that I need to be titled that way. Um, and then I also, in preparation, was looking at our similarities because we've known each other for years. But that doesn't mean we've, you know, sat around the uh, the teepee with a with an ayahuasca beverage and spent seventeen hours together to understand our journeys. And so, not only did I notice the similarities, but there are similarities that don't even show up in our CV. Like the three things that it seems that you've done is cannabis, real estate. I'll say the technology, but really because of what you do in cannabis, those are not actually uh, separate and then music. And so in my CV, it's the exact three categories. In fact, we were working at the same national real estate brokerage in 2008, unbeknownst to each other, you and SoCal, me and NorCal, you focusing on commercial. I wasn't,
1: I wasn't in SoCal yet. I was in Philly at that time. So I moved, I moved to, I moved to LA in 2010
2: so, okay, at so the, after uh, one,
1: yeah oh man well so here's here's my story and, and you're right I was uh, um, I was doing consulting and then uh, I was working for a company called Cognizant Technology Solutions, which is on site offshore. It was making really good a good living. I was miserable man it, like it never connected my soul and all the way from my ex-wife telling me, like you have to get a real job. So then I went to work for Price Waterhouse, and then PwC, and I did all this stuff. And then I invested in a property, like a pre-construction in Florida. It was my first real estate investment, and because everybody was doing it, it was, uh, I think, like two thousand four, five. So in that in that area, in, in that time frame, where everybody was doing it, and I was so nervous. I, had nothing, I knew nothing about real estate, and I flipped it. And I made a hundred grand and I ended up buying a Jersey shore property uh, that we could actually drive to instead of flying over. Cause we had a baby and all that stuff. But, um, I told my, my wife, I'm like, I want to do real estate. She's like, I can't see you driving around showing homes and all that stuff. I'm like, I want to do commercial. I think, and I had no idea if I need to take a summer license. I, I knew nothing. And uh, then, you know, I just went to get my real estate license, got my real estate license. And then you get all these offers. Everybody's coming in, uh, you know, work for my brokerage. I had no idea. And I met this guy, uh, his name is Alan. And he said, it's a really small, small brokerage outside of Philly in Pennsylvania. And he said, come to lunch with me. So I'm sitting at lunch and he goes, look around you, including the building you're sitting in. You see all these buildings everywhere around you where you can see. He goes, I either sold or leased each one of these properties in a small town called Lansdale, uh, Pennsylvania. He goes, I have no kids, no wife, nobody. I would love to have somebody I can mentor and maybe take over one day. What better sales pitch was that? It was like, yeah, man. Me with a good time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm I'm in. So I went in and uh, he was helping me in the beginning a little bit. And, uh, I, I got lucky. I closed the deal. I made, I don't know, 10, 15,000 or something like that I made no more money that same year. I had no idea what I was doing. Gave me the yellow pages said, good old fashioned shoe leather, uh, you know, and then knock on doors and call expired listings. I knew I had no idea, but the one thing he told me was, he goes, if you can find a niche for yourself to differentiate yourself from other people, do that. So I got lucky a year later. Luckily, I had savings and we were okay for the for the time being, but still I was nervous. I made like 10 grand a year when I was making a lot more than that. And I got a gas station listing. And I struggled through this. I had no idea about remediation, about tax. Underground
2: storage tanks, phase one, environmental. <laughs> no, no, none of that shit. organic <laughs> compounds in the water. <laughs> Thank
1: you. All of that. No idea. None. And I struggled, but I sold a gas station. And I was like, Remember what he said? I'm going to be the gas station guy, and I started branding myself as the gas station guy. And I started getting like retail centers with a gas station corner and all that stuff. And then uh, I was doing a deal with a realtor who's mostly residential, but this both at Keller Williams. And I never knew this was a pitch, by the way. Uh, it was my ego. I was I was like, I'm the man. I was commercial real estate. I was got my brokerage license. I'm a broker now. All that stuff. And we're selling a mixed use industrial property. He goes, Hey. Uh, well, I said, let me handle the deal. I'll You'll get your commission. Don't worry about it. I, I got this. He goes, hey, do you have like 15 minutes to get, grab a cup of coffee cup with of coffee. me and my broker? <laughs> 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 That's a cup of coffee. That's a Cal Williams thing. I had no idea. So yeah, I got recruited to Cal Williams and uh, KW Commercial. And uh, at that time, I think the president, they just started the commercial division. Buddy Norman was the president. We all flew to Austin. And then yeah. uh, I was the... Managing Director of KW Commercials.
2: I saw that. You know, it's interesting because like you, I got sucked into real estate. My grandfather was in real estate in Jersey. I remember when I graduated high school, he got me a fancy watch. He says, I hope you're wearing this when you close your first real estate deal. It took me a long time to get into real estate. I have already lost the watch, but luckily he was still alive and with us. But what got me into real estate was I had this friend of mine who, because I was in music like you, I just don't have it on my LinkedIn, but I was an executive producer for lifestyle events and electronic music, dance festivals. and I had this friend and he was a DJ and, you know, not to be overly judgy, but I'll just sort of drop the mask. He was lazier than me, uglier than me and stupider than me, in my opinion at that time. And he had a house and a condo and he was doing things. And I was like, wait, I'm still renting half of a duplex in a not great neighborhood. What's going on? And so I went and I put all my, you know, at that point you could just do the bank statements. You know, you're talking four and five free correction, pretty easy to get loans. I, and and as as a concert producer, I put all the money through the bank. I never had anything under the table. And so I, I I, I and they would generally judge you based on your gross, not your name. So I, I brought that to a mortgage broker and the guy said, you can buy anything. The only question is, what are you comfortable buying? And so I reached out to a real estate guy. And I had trust issues because I thought real estate professionals were like, you know, just slightly more affluent car salespeople. You know, there's this sort of this, this, this residual thing that we do. We judge this 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 category of of professional. And 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 so I said, Well, I'm not gonna get taken get taken advantage of. So I went to my local junior college and I signed up for nine units of real estate that semester because I was gonna make sure my real estate agent didn't take advantage of me. I wasn't gonna buy something that was sliding off the side of the hill. And and so that 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 semester, I got into into an escrow, and I said, "Well, what about a mold inspection?" And this guy sold like, a mold inspection. What is mold inspection? You see some mold, you just rub it with bleach, you're, you're fine, you're fine. And so I did this indoor air quality test where they take the air and they put it in a petri dish and they ship it out to a lab. And sure enough, it came back with mold. And so I ended up working with that guy later when I got my real estate license, and I'd like to think I taught him as much as he taught me, but three semesters, four semesters later, I'd taken like pretty much every real estate class that the that the local junior college, which is top 10 in the nation, had to offer, and along the way, I started getting into the appraisal stuff, and I learned about square footage and lot size and bedroom and bathroom count location, and like you... First deal out of the gate, I purchased something in a seller's market and it appraised for a hundred thousand dollars more than I paid for it as a buyer. And I was told that the appraiser was concerned about appraising it for even more because he was afraid the bank would say, Well, what's the backstory? This doesn't check out. And I took that equity, I pulled it out, I bought another house across the street. I bought another house, you know, in in, in Sacramento instead of Sonoma County. And like you, things that reinforce me, things that feed me, things that like put money in my pocket, things where I'm like, wow, this ain't so bad. I'm like, maybe I should do a little bit more of this. And people are like, oh, you should be in real estate sales. I was like, I hate sales. I am not going to do that. So I wanted to get it to become an appraiser because I like that sort of cerebral approach to value square footage. The things that, you know, with your commercial experience, you know, are, are, are a bit more dry, right? And, and, and I like the idea that appraisers, you know, for these complex commercial assignments can make five to 10 grand on an assignment and sit there and, you know, flex their brain and pull their comps and what have you and yada, yada, yada. And then I found out that to get an appraiser's license is like being like um like in martial arts, you start with a white belt and then you go to a yellow belt and then a purple belt. And like, they just want you to like do drive by pictures and fill their coffee cup. And I was like, oh God, no, I'm not doing that. I've already known what it's like to make pretty decent money. And I don't want to crawl my way up from the mailroom. So reluctantly, I got the sales license and I was like, well, I'll do mortgages and I'll also do sales. And, you know, if someone has a lender, great, I can help you find the property. If somebody has a agent, great, I'll be your lender. What I found was that most of the people in real estate didn't trust somebody who had dual capacity because they're afraid that you were going to try to pick off their client. And in the meantime, you know, after buying, you know, a few houses in California and some fourplexes in, in Arizona with my, at that point, fiance, like the market just took a whoosh, off the cliff, right? And, and I thought I was so smart. I had calculated a decay rate on the appreciation. I had calculated a bubble bursting. And so we really lost our shorts. We lost some properties. And it was in no small measure part of the reason why we uh, started cultivating a lot of cannabis because at that point in California, with the ability to recapture expenses, which could include, include <laughs> big PGNIA bills, carrying costs, you know, labor or nutrients and all those other things uh, and still have some reasonable remuneration for your efforts and opportunity costs and the risks like that looked pretty good. That was a better tenant than anybody else that I could choose. And we started growing cannabis and and and, and, and trying to find ways to cash flow the properties that we still kept. Um, and, and what's interesting to me now is in much the same way, your science background absolutely dovetails into what you do in cannabis My real estate experience absolutely dovetails into what I do in cannabis. And so like that, that no title needed, like, um, first of all, I'm second generation in cannabis, right? Earned my first dollar when I was 11 years old trimming for my mom's family farm. Was that child labor? Yes. Was it as bad as being in a Nike sweatshop? not at all did it forever change the trajectory of my vocational aspirations did i ever want to get up at 5 30 a.m and throw uh newspapers up onto someone's front stoop no not after i had trimmed cannabis and got paid pretty good as an 11 year old um and so you know as i got older the real estate thing seemed like a very stable boring uh and hopefully there's a relationship between uh boring and profitable uh i don't know that that's the case but at least i believed that at the time and so i got into real estate and then I started realizing, especially with controlled environment agriculture, that like indoor cannabis cultivation is really just real estate development. It's got to be sophisticated, clandestine. It's limited by square footage and power coming in. And I learned a lot about real estate, not just being a, a real estate sales agent that focused on rural property, at uh, luxury rural property, but also I learned a lot about cannabis and all of that I was able to then leverage later when cannabis became regulated because at the end of the day, I don't actually believe with the exception of genetics, with the exception of intellectual property, with the exception of some of the medical advancements, at least certainly adult use cannabis at the end of the day is not an industry in my mind so much as it's a very specialized niche of real estate because there's no such thing as a commercial uh, cannabis permit without an APN number or an address. These things are not mobile. They're site specific. They're zoning specific. and, And so- I I got into 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 cultivating cannabis uh, a because I liked it. It was very predictable. It was a lot of fun. It felt like we were on the cutting edge of something. And and and, and so you know, as a result of my cannabis involvement, after 11 years in cufflinks, um, I I I I like to say I'm a recovered realtor now. I, I stopped being a realtor and I went into land use and zoning consulting with an emphasis. On cannabis, because I always believe the more complicated, the more profitable. Right? There's a barrier to entry. Not every schmo can do it. You're not going to be able to just watch a YouTube video and replicate what I know and how I do. And so, um I got into land use and zoning consulting, and I've never been able to perfect my elevator speech. Like anytime somebody says, "So, what do you do in this space?" Like. Four minutes later, I'm rambling like some incoherent person because I've never been able to succinctly summarize what I do, what I know, and what functions and value I provide. But really what it's been at its core has been understanding and applying analysis to the real estate component of regulated canvas, whether that's zoning setbacks, production capabilities, um, what are the limiting factors, and, and really helping people to understand and maximize highest and best use. When it comes to cannabis property, whether that's a consumption lounge in Detroit, like I was working on last month, or it's a cultivation uh, facility in you know in, in Mendocino County, like two years ago, whatever that was, cannabis regulated cannabis to me is really just real estate.
1: Well, you're pro- you're you're an expert in the profitability of real estate as it uh, as it's associated with the cannabis uh, industry. I mean, you whatever you do in that is all those things of how but that's really you know what you do you're an expert in that field. I'll, I'll tell you some other intersects for us as I, as you were talking I was thinking. So first of all, my dad is from Belarus. He was born in Minsk and I have a whole bunch of shtetl people in that in that area. I was born in Lithuania. My mom is a, a Lithuanian. So the there was my dad worked for a company called Viche uh, Interconnected. Interconnect but the name Vichay <clears throat> was this guy, Dr. Zanman, Felix Zanman, uh, was living in a shtetl between Lithuania and Belarus that was called Vichay. He was the only lone survivor of the entire shtetl because when they killed everybody in the shtetl, he had oh, he had somebody that fell on top of him that was killed. And he laid there for a couple of days with a dead body over him and everybody. And they thought he, he was uh, he was dead. So the funny—I uh, I don't know if it's funny—he wrote a book about this. It's, it's an amazing story. Uh, romantic one person, comedy, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's a romantic <laughs> comedy of uh, this one man getting out. And uh, but he built—he built this amazing company, and in in Pennsylvania, and then he opened up a second one in Israel, and then he also opened up—you uh, uh, know—some some work in, in Germany, and he that <laughs> kept going back and in in Germany. And it was an interesting experience to come full circle and be able to provide uh, you know, those, those assets to that. The other thing is on the real estate side. So how I got into cannabis again, I was, I was um, an activist. I was the president of the Cannabis Action. Network. recall that other stuff. People, people probably know or don't know. Just Google me. It's not, not about me. But how I got into cannabis in California when I moved here, I was trying to make a decision. So California is not a reciprocal state. And uh, I, I'm a broker in, in Pennsylvania, but it's reciprocal with many different states, but not California. So I sat there and people knew me in, in the Keller Williams, uh, whatever system. So I sat in, in the Larchmont office, I guess it's, it's okay to say in Park. and i And uh, I'm, I'm not licensed, but I'm a quote unquote consultant because I have some a little bit of expertise here and there. And people walked in to try to talk to this other agent about opening up an alternative pharmacy. The guy comes up to me and is like, I don't really know what these guys want. They seem shady. Look at the way they're dressed, whatever. whatever. I'm like, I walked over. I knew exactly what they want to do. They want to open up a dispensary. Yeah. So, I, so I'm like, dispensary? Yeah. Why don't you say so? Like, I don't know. We don't know. So, long story, just a little bit longer. I helped them. They had no paperwork, nothing, Prop 215 compliant, nothing. And I helped them. They offered me a partnership. So that's how I got into the dispensary. Business uh, owner operator of dispensaries uh, uh, called Kush Kingdom. We have multiple uh, properties. So, real estate trajectory into cannabis
2: uh, again. that's sort of you know similar stories also. Well, and it's also interesting you touch on something around not being licensed in California, but still being able to be a real estate professional and provide substantial value and guidance, just not quoting interest rates, talking prices, or negotiating necessarily on behalf of people. And so I I haven't had a real estate license since 16 as a result of my premature attempts to bank cannabis cash in 2010 that didn't work out well for me or the other 13 defendants. (laughs) And so... um, I have understood both the limitations as well as the opportunities in real estate in California, not having a license. And this end of last year, I finished up an 18-month stint as a director of real estate for a commercial real estate development company that focused on dispensary development in 15 states. And because of the fact that our footprint was so far beyond California, there was no way we were going to have licenses in every state, right? So understanding those underpinnings, those those sort of underpinnings of of commercial, and then working with in-state brokerages, sometimes other, you know, uh, attorneys instead of brokerages, um, and sort of herding cats and coordinating all of that. Um, it, it, great experience. I mean, once you understand some of these underpinnings, great experience. One thing I would say, though, is I've, I've always noticed the difference in real estate on the West Coast versus the East Coast. And I was taught and I've continued to pair it for the last 20 years, that that's the difference between the derivatives of English common law on the West Coast versus Spanish common law. I'm sorry, English common law on the East Coast versus Spanish common law on the West Coast. What was challenging for me though, doing real estate outside of California was just this notion that like the real estate professionals don't actually get you into a binding contract. And so that period of time where you've got these term sheets or these MOUs or these LOIs, but they're not binding and then you're paying these other people to go long form on these agreements and everything is customized and red lines and back and forth, you know, California made, made California look actually kind of easy because in California, you know, real estate professionals who have a real estate license can get their clients into, into contract, something that's binding and doesn't require attorneys on either side and, and, and attorneys are great. Attorneys are valuable. The best attorneys are never the quickest. And yeah. so I, I, I have a bit my too much caffeine in my my system to to appreciate uh the cadence of commercial outside of California.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it, and and I learned my lesson this way. That's why I didn't want to go and do real estate again because when the market whatever you want to call it, corrected itself or whatever terminology you are using imploded <laughs> 2008 <laughs> was ridiculous. So I owned a bunch of properties I went through my divorce and whatever whatever. Timing of everything was was Good or bad, depending on how you look at it, but the universe opened up these other opportunities for me. But I, when the market was collapsing, I shifted over to sell non performing notes. And speaking about, you know, regulations or lack thereof, you're actually doing these things called deed in lieu transactions. In lieu. Yep, Which was, I mean, ridiculous. You go in and you pay people like, Hey, I'll give you 50 grand, sign over your million dollar property to me. And walk the away. properties they walk they walk away because they need money so bad and you're sitting on a million dollar property that still is owed uh you know, 300 grand from by the uh, to the bank and you negotiate with the bank, I'll give you 150 and the bank takes it. It was crazy for a minute and then the hedge funds got into it and they're like, "No, no, 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 no. We'll buy the entire portfolio. Yeah. We'll and, buy the whole uh, thing." And when it's no more thirty cents on dollar, it's seventy cents in the dollar. But because they wanted trophy property, but the thing that you were talking about, it gave me PTSD because I remember there was these deals. Like I got a hotel uh, in in Vegas, and and I'm I'm a bird dog, and and you have fifteen people that have their hand out. They're saying, "Well, I brought this deal, and I brought this deal, and you give me oh my god!" And who was legitimate? It's a full a group contact of funds sport. I was like, it's a full context. No, 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 no. I said, I am not. And and cannabis is difficult in itself, but having that real estate background definitely helped.
2: It's interesting that you touch on that uh, 07, 08 sort of correction period. Uh, You know, uh, I think I have the the dates right. And because I see some parallels in that real estate correction that I'm seeing currently in regulated cannabis. Mm -hmm. And to sort of link those two to what happened, you know, however long ago that was, 15 years ago, compared with what we're seeing now, understand that economies are cyclical, but also the painful lesson, the humbling experience that, that occurred for me uh, in, in the, that real estate correction and me learning secondhand, unfortunately, well, that more wealth is created in a downturn than an upturn. And I didn't understand that and I didn't appreciate not being on the, the side of that dynamic that I wanted to during that period. But I think about that now in terms of regulated cannabis and also your deed in lieu of, right? Because what you're talking about is a is a, a solution for distressed assets, right? And we're seeing a lot of that in cannabis now. We're also seeing that, you know, past a path to bankruptcy isn't necessarily clear, linear, or acceptable. A lot of receiverships, a lot of people getting stuff. 20 cents on the dollar a lot of people uh, assuming that everything is distressed when everything isn't but also not sure when they participate in sort of getting that value that comes with the troughs and not the peaks and so i'm seeing a lot of that in california especially you know people from out of state are afraid to even participate in california while simultaneously acknowledging that it's the largest cannabis economy and then people within california really being opportunistic in a way that you know understanding that there's naturally winners and losers in capitalism and in business and that not everything is a win-win um but it's been hard for me as well because i'm emotionally invested i've never believed that real estate professionals who are just passionate have a competitive advantage i believe if you if you lead with your heart and you put extra blood sweat and tears on the playing field you're probably going to be more fiduciary and, and 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 do a better job right and so I've seen this this massive correction in cannabis real estate, you know, in my favorite regions like the Emerald Triangle, uh, not just because of regulated cannabis overtaxation, lack of uh, dispensaries and the uh, the the overburdensome regulation, but also because some of these lo- local local pack- patchwork of of counties and municipalities don't have we don't have a consistent system within 50, uh, within the 58 counties of california so when people make these broad statements about the california cannabis industry it's not there there isn't just one like if you really want to go granular there's 58 and their derivatives are sub you know their variations on a theme but i've watched in the emerald triangle as you know lake county can stand up massive acreage massive acreage and then mendocino is limiting you to a 10k and yeah. so we can lament the the race to the bottom we can lament the you know the extension of the crass cottage cultivator we can talk about newsom and whether he was disingenuous with his blue ribbon campaign we can talk about the last minute uh gutting of the proposed regs that would have given the cottage cultivator a a two or three year head start on these massive acreage grows and all of that at this point is is water under the bridge or tears under the bridge but but that these 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 craft cottage cultivators didn't have the the head start that they were sort of led to believe was going to exist and be baked into the regs, And so as a result, some of the most important regions are not actually participating in a way that's commensurate with their oversized contribution, not only to the history of cannabis in the United States, but also to the cultivars that were designed and coaxed to provide the highest genetic expression of these certain strains Because of the areas that they were developed in, and those areas, unfortunately, haven't really caught up with the sort of race to the bottom. And, you know, we had this idea that we were going to have appellations on labels, but if you go into a dispensary in California, I guarantee that you're not going to see the appellations on the majority of labels. And so the consumer hasn't even had a chance to spend and to put a value on Appalachians because those are not consistent across labels. There is a world in which somebody is going to say, Alder's Point is way more valuable than Adelanto. However, until that's on the labels, we won't really know. It's an untested theory. Well, I
1: I think you you hit the nail on the head in terms of this whole notion of um, the people who are creating the laws don't understand the culture. And this is and this is along the entire country, and we live in a country of fifty different countries. But you know, there's a guy that I I, I know in the Emerald Triangle. His name is Wade Laughter. He brought uh, Harlequin as as a cultivar to yeah. the country. He said he, he's from Vietnam. He smuggled whatever the story is. Great, but to be able to use his story and show what a therapeutic herb this is, I'm not. The, the, the legal market had taken away a lot of that. So they're missing the opportunity to actually promote these craft uh, cultivators by creating this value. And I'm not saying that the Emerald Triangle isn't still cultivating and sending, but you want to you wanna limit the uh, black market, as you, you would call it. Well, allow everybody to participate equally, and and they don't. So uh, legally, because it's the taxation, all these other things that are part of it uh, that I see in in this industry. And, you know, different states do it differently. Some states maybe are better than California. California definitely was one of the first and made a lot of mistakes. Hopefully, if the federal government ever gets their, their act together, we can have some regulation that everybody follows and allows us to lift each other up as an industry.
2: You know, I'm I'm fortunate. So as you know, I reached out to you because I wanted to participate and create some content with you after knowing you for a, a handful of years. And, and, and I was lucky enough to find out this week that I'm going to be able to be on a panel in Washington, D.C., 10 minutes from the White House at George Washington School of Law on a panel around legacy to legal. Very few people can say they have legacy, medical, and then... Post-Prop 64 legal regulated experience in California, very few people can say that. And very few of those people are as young as I am and, and 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 can go from the war stories and the battle scars to really go into granular conversations about policy and what's working and what's not, right? And so it's interesting to me because we've got this unregulated market problem. And if I was wearing a tinfoil hat, I would almost... Uh, postulate that regulation has done as much to support the unregulated market as it has to support the regulated market. And the reason why I'm both feet into the regulated market is because the government took all the fun out of the unregulated or underregulated market for me. And in, in, until one has had an AR-15 pointed at one's chest while one is in a bath towel, or until one has had to speak to one's children behind glass while in an orange jumpsuit, or until one has had to watch the process of asset forfeiture on one's net worth, which does not require a guilty conviction, I might add, It's, it's, you know, it's, it's just, I don't understand how there wasn't some understanding that if you tax things with a scorched earth approach and you make the difference in profitability so pronounced, you are actually pushing people away from regulation. The best thing about regulated cannabis, first of all, you know, I love that the complaints can be about the cost cost the lack of 280E tax deductions and, you know, Cal OSHA and the State Bureau of Equalization, because that's still better than cops and robbers, right? But like the best thing about regulated cannabis, in my mind, is the supply chain safety, the laboratory testing. Now we could digress. We could talk about pay to play. We could talk about inflated THC results. We could do all that. Certainly there's a lot to fix there. But this notion that, and this is really hard for people in cannabis to wrap their minds around, much less admit, right? Because we have this like my Greek wedding approach. Remember the guy with like the spray bottle of like glass? Windex. And, he windexed, Windex. and it was for everything. Oh, you've got a problem in your nostrils? Spray some Windex up. Oh, you've got some arthritis? Spray some Windex up it. And like everybody who thinks cannabis cures everything. But the truth is, and this is one of the reasons why I like what you're doing in the space. The truth is we're the first generation in the history of humankind that has actually made cannabis fatal. How did we do that? Through concentrates, because when we concentrated the good, we concentrated the bad, and when we concentrated the bad, we didn't know that just because something is OMRI rated doesn't mean it should be aerosolized and put into our lungs. We didn't know that our, you know, that we should be reading white papers not rolling white papers on whether Azetrol or floramite or these, you know, certain categories of, uh, of, of bug protection were actually going to be safe for us. And so when I got into regulated cannabis and I realized that even though I was a really good grower, that there were things that I was putting on my own products and then consuming myself that were not good for me. I was like, yeah, hey, I got kids. I want to live long enough to like, you know, spoil my grandkids and like, how do we do that if we don't have that consumer safety that comes with lab testing and a regulated supply chain? So I'm definitely all in on that. And I think that's the thing that bothers me the most about the the unregulated market and the proliferation of the unregulated market is just that we need to have an industry that is committed to <laughs> age-restricted products that are tested down to the parts per billion that are safe enough to justify a slight uptick to cost that you get with a regulated supply chain and we're not getting that and then the other thing that's really challenging for me also is that the regulated market in other states has propped up an unregulated market in other states that decimated the historic prolifically producing region that is my emerald triangle 707 right and so like why would somebody take unregulated biomass from the heart of the mountains on the you know, tip of the West Coast, when there are states between it and our largest consuming markets on the East Coast, if they could they could reduce their smuggling route by 50%. And yeah. so the regulated market has allowed for diversion in other states that has not supported the region that I think really needs to regain its rightful claim as sort of the epicenter, at least in this country. And we all agree that, you know, the alcohol model has so many similarities that Appalachians and, you know, bifurcated product between the Opus One and the Two Buck Chuck, that that's where this is going to go. And that, you know, when I traveled to Southeast Asia, you know, people would buy the most expensive bottle of Johnny Walker because it was a status symbol, it was a prestigious thing. It was, a, we're celebrating a special event, right? And we know that that's going to happen, but if we can't get there quick enough, those regions that produced the opus ones those regions that had all of the talent that knew how to create the opus ones these people are going to be selling solar or moving to Idaho or doing something different if we can't create a sustainable path towards that and like every industry that has been successful in this country there tends to be this partnership between private enterprise you know government research institutions sort of the three legs of the stool and Substantial subsidies. You know, this is like one of the only agricultural products that doesn't have substantial federal subsidies. I mean, I don't know how much taxes Apples pays, but it's not much because they can offshore their corporation to Ireland and whatnot and then route it through the canons. And so it's only now I think that the government is realizing that if they're going to stand up regulated cannabis and have regulated cannabis be really successful, they're probably going to need to do what a lot of other nascent industries did, which was get. Get some help get some support get some grant funding get some you know uh, uh financial uh consideration because the notion that we're going to go from unregulated to nascent to mature and have all of that be successful without uh a substantial government support is just you know optimistic at best
1: yeah no I, I, brilliant you said and when, and when you're in dc maybe you can uh, uh stop by uh you know biden's home and say to him, listen, if you're going to do anything, Grandpa, uh, one thing that I'm going to ask you create a standard for testing across the country. You don't have to do anything yet. We'll, we'll figure that out. We'll, we'll reschedule or remove prohibition like we did with alcohol. It we'll was never rescheduled. We just removed the prohibition and the state decided how to do interstate commerce. But this, what you just said, is hugely, hugely important. I'm going to second that because re- regulating testing. Is key. We want to make sure that we're putting the right product in our bodies all the time. And if I'm doing it in one lab and I have different test results from another lab and this state has these requirements, this state has these requirements, then it's all over the place. And we're never going to get out of this, the dark ages of cannabis until we sort of lift uh, up. Um, I'm going to shift uh, focus for a little little bit. You mentioned you grew up in uh, San Francisco, correct?
2: Yeah, I was born in San Francisco and raised in San Francisco and Sonoma County, spending summers, weekends, and extended periods of time in Mendocino County, a little bit of Southern Humboldt.
1: So uh, your parents were together, divorced? uh, So my mom and dad
2: divorced when I was about six or seven years old, and my mom you know, uh, wanted to make sure that I didn't just have an urban upbringing and she had a cabin outside of Willits. I learned to swim in the overflow pool or hot springs while my dad was writing his, you know, uh, his, his, his landmark novel, um, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and so I was like a city kid, but I had birds in my socks and I still learned how to catch lizards and grew up a little bit on Spyrock Road in Laytonville and Compshi and Covalo and Whiskey Town and Whale Gulch and some of these little teeny pockets in the triangle and still grew up in San Francisco. And then, you know, in junior high, my mom moved up to Sonoma County and we traded sirens for crickets. Um, and then I went back down to San Francisco because, you know, my parents sort of time shared me like a condo in Maui. Um, You know, first it was every other week and then it was every six months and then it was like school years. Right. And so moved back up to Sonoma County. And then really just like at this point, I've spent as much of my life in Sonoma County as I did in San Francisco a little bit more. And I grew up in a really rough neighborhood of San Francisco during the crack epidemic. Like, you know, I felt like I was growing up in Beirut, only I've never been to Beirut. And like, I, I, I grew up two blocks away from the highest murder rate in San Francisco. And like, I always knew that I wanted to be a dad and I always knew I was never going to raise my kids where I grew up. And so there was this sense of success to be able to be a little bit distanced and removed from that and to have them grow up with chickens and a garden and, uh, instead of playing chicken with the, with the cars in the street. do you you have any siblings i do i have a younger brother and a younger sister my dad remarried and um and so i'm super fortunate i have a a brother who's 13 years younger than me who's the vp of the of the uh, washington commanders and a sister 17 years years younger than me who's a speech pathologist at a hospital in san francisco they're amazing i'm super fortunate um and and really uh, she my sister was my inspiration for a wanting to have a girl and B, wanting to have more than two kids. I mean, more it's than it's amazing.
1: One. Yeah, yeah. i so I'm trying to understand because I'm I'm divorced and I have a 18 year old daughter who's now going, going to be going to college, so I'll be I'll be an empty nester. It's yeah, thank you. It's a it's quite an interesting journey. Uh, but so you're divorced. Uh, I mean, your parents are divorced, and you're staying with your mom most of the time. And then. You come for the summers with your dad? Is that,
2: is that so how it works? So parents separated and they both lived in San Francisco. I go back and forth every week and went to the same right, right. Mom moved up to Sonoma County. I went to junior high up there for two years and then moved back down to San Francisco to go to school of the arts and live at my dad's with my stepmom and my 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 half sibs for another got couple it. years. High school end. I can't live in the war zone anymore. I bounced- uh, so this
1: was all the way through high school.
2: Yeah, all the and way then through- i oh, okay. got it back got it. up to Sonoma County and um, so did you see your mom like as you were as oh, you were yeah. living with your dad? Oh yeah, and 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 you know my mom remarried only she remarried a woman instead of a man. So like I never had to deal with the whole stepdad dynamic, and I got another you know half brother through that deal through my I don't have a family tree I have a family vine right. It's a little well, I,
1: I'm so curious about this because and I'm sorry if I and I'm just you just said it casually, but I'm gonna pry a little bit more. So and th- were your parents? One of the reasons why the divorce, maybe because your mom was uh,
2: no, no, no that, it wasn't like she was like, hey, I like chocolate instead of vanilla. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. that you know, no. hey, I got a side chick instead of you having a side chick. It was just that after they were divorced and separated, year or two later, there was somebody who she had known for many years, and 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 they fell in love, and she was in a different chapter. They've been together like they're like the lesbian version of swans. They like made it for life. They've been together for like 32 33 years when when gay marriage was legalized in the United States uh, you know in California they tied the knot and so I got an M1 and an M2 mom one and mom two it's and you know, at this point they're you know um I mean it's been very very enriching and gratifying and luckily you know with a lot of the things that I've had the opportunity to experience or be a small part of like cannabis or like being the child of a gay parent And watching them be able to tie the knot and and make each other miserable, just like any other uh, married couple. Right. (laughs) But um, I'm They, You know, like I've had a chance to sort of see these changes in the zeitgeist in the way society approaches topics and issues that used to be taboo or looked at in a certain way or differently. And so like now having two a mom that's married to another woman is like, whatever, no big whoop 30 years ago, not so much, yeah. And, and, for sure. and, and forty years ago, you know, I was like, "Oh yeah, that's my mom's roommate," you know. And so,
1: yeah, you have to be. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, uh, you know, your friends come over, who's that? Like, there's a whole bunch of there's a whole dynamic. that right I, now, I was in we the closet some, for them, right? I didn't want we, to
2: talk about it. I was right, like, you know, this is even we take that so from granted myself. I'm like, that's a roommate, and they had we lived in a house and there were two separate bedrooms for them. But I don't know that they ever slept in separate bedrooms, maybe one night somebody snored because they drank too much wine or something. And and so uh, that was an interesting path and journey. But I I feel like regulated cannabis and regulated cannabis to me is a spectrum of changes in society. And if I think about these fulcrums, these sort of points in American society, you know, there was the women's suffrage movement. And finally, it was like, Oh, yeah, women can vote too, right. And then there was sort of the civil rights movement. And then I looked at sort of like, gay rights. And I look at sort of Cannabis through this lens of, wait a second. Oh, first of all, oh, God, the statistics and the facts are in, and cannabis appears to have been an enforcement tool against communities of poverty and communities of color. In fact, geez, we have a little bit of blood on our hands here when we look at the arrest and conviction rates of people of color for cannabis compared with people who are not of color and what is that telling us about institutionalized racism not that america isn't the greatest country in the world but what makes this country the greatest country in the world is the ability to complain about it and make it better right and to dissent and to say that dissent is the most patriotic process that and voting and so like when we look at like cannabis and cannabis prohibition it's intrinsically linked to racism and really sort of Welling dissent, you know, in the early seventies around this opposition to the war in Vietnam, because the hippies were making love, didn't want to make war, wanted to tune in, tune out, what have you, and we're like, wait a second, why are why are we dying overseas and killing a bunch of other people at the same time, and how does that align with the Jimi Hendrix that I'm rocking out to and Golden get Park? It right. does it? And so, so I think about you know cannabis and the activism that I've had a chance to do in cannabis, small role, small role, not a big deal, but having gone through cannabis persecution myself and then having understood that the outcome in my process in the judicial system was in no small measure impacted by three critical elements where I was a defendant, the color of my skin and the resources I was able to put into the, one of the best criminal defense attorneys in the history of Northern California and understanding that like that meant that my journey through that was completely different than somebody else. Like, I got out and started getting really involved in the conversation around social equity to the best of my ability through NCAA, through CCIA, through SCGA, now through the board of and, and And to just, like, look at that and go, well, wait, it, the best thing about this country is our ability to, like, be a part of the change we want to see. And to really dig in and go, wait, we need to make it a more equitable future than it was yesterday. And how do we do that? And so I hope that cannabis and cannabis policy is sort of like a a change agent to have these broader conversations around social justice and sort of what are we going to do to make our brand of capitalism more aligned with values that are sustainable, where there's equal opportunity and where we can sort of remedy some of the harms we've done, right? Because we're a great country, but that doesn't mean that we've done everything right. Yeah, and, and
1: yeah, social equity is a whole interesting uh, uh, discussion because people use it for different purposes in the cannabis space. I, I actually look in this country. I'm an immigrant. I came to this country when I was, you know, six years old. But basically, you know, in America, I grew up here, and I travel around the world everywhere. And racism and uh, uh, inequality exists everywhere. We're not the only uh, country to do that, uh, to have that. The one thing that this country has that's really, really interesting is you just said this socioeconomic divide. So regardless of what your skin color is, and I'm not saying everything you said is 100 percent on point. Uh, you know, people of color are much are, are imprisoned much more, much longer sentences, all that stuff. But socioeconomic is really where the biggest uh, differentiator is because people like O.J., regardless of his skin color, can afford the Best attorneys in the world, regardless of what uh, what it is, and he can get away with murder, quote unquote. Uh, and you know Johnny from uh, Bumblefuck, Arkansas, with three teeth, and gets busted for an eighth of weed. got a public defender. He can't uh, even
2: bail out and he's doing time before he's been convicted and then gets credit for time served because he couldn't get out. Oh, and while he couldn't get out, he couldn't provide for his family. And while he couldn't provide for his family, that triggered the broken home. And while there was the broken home, there was a fallout to the kids and their scholastic achievement and their upward mobility. I mean, the the, the war on cannabis has been a war on families. and hundred percent and 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 created that you know that i mean the biggest challenge i mean the american dream was about being able to come over here and become middle class right it was never about being a billionaire and being able to buy an island and all this intergenerational wealth stuff that is sprinkled around all the time to talk about massive opportunity the american dream was come here with fucking nothing and create something right and to be middle class and we've watched the decimation of the middle class, the only thing more endangered than the middle class in the United States is the polar bears in fucking North, you know, arctic, <laughs> right? Because their little ice caps are melting in just the same way that gap between the haves and the have nots is becoming greater. And so, you know, I and I find this, 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 this cognitive distortion in regulated cannabis where people feel like you either got to be about the plant or about the money. And I'm like, wait, wait, why? Why can't it be about both? Why because people, do right because, do well.
1: because people are coming into the industry have no connection to plant whatsoever. They, I've spoken to so many people who are financing the cannabis industry who have never ever consumed the, the plant or maybe tried it once or
2: or so. I really didn't like it. So they don't have that connection. Tell them all. I'm available for <laughs> consulting, and then my SME go. goes beyond real estate, social equity. Controlled environment agriculture. This year, I'm lucky enough to be judging the Emerald Cup. God bless them. 19, 20 years, every year. It's the Oscars of weed. And I'm judging it. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I know that no one else is as happy about me being a judge as I am. But how lucky am I? that I have an opportunity to experience regulated, lab-tested, safe products from people who are busting their home to make the most elevated expressions of the plant and to do live rosin and resins and distillates and CO2s and all the different things. And how lucky am I that I got finally chosen to be able to play in this playground? And this, and, and like, how cool is that? How cool is that? Like, it's that- amazing,
1: man. I love their I I remember I, I spoke there one year, and I I love the consumption event. But I, I think there was a year they didn't have consumption. Uh, I believe, and I'm like, you can't have the annual couple that consi. It may made, made no sense. I mean, they changed the whole uh, event. I want to go back to one thing just because I'm curious and yeah. I want to make sure I use the, the time wisely. Um, did your mom's and your your dad and your step family? Did they get along? Like, would you sit down at Thanksgiving dinner all together? I'm just trying to paint this picture oh. it, it, partially for myself too. I'm trying to see how, you know, my family is going to, because we don't, we don't do that with my so, ex.
2: First of all, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. <laughs> Secondly, so my dad and mom were together for a long time. Married, had one munchkin, divorced when I was five or six. It was relatively amicable, wasn't some sort of protracted, bitter custody thing. Many years later, my mom went from AC to DC, found the love of her life, has been with that lady for the rest of her life, and I got a stepbrother. Interestingly, my mom was a cultivator, and the woman who became her wife was also a cultivator. And both of them were cultivators before they had met, right? So, like, when I think about the diversity of cannabis, like, the, the cannabis that I, cannabis industry I knew before it was an industry. There were some, you know, gay women shot callers who were doing their thing and growing big trees. And sure. so, I think because of that, my dad never felt like some guy took his place or filled his shoes or somebody was a bigger dog than he was. It was like okay, different chapter, no big deal. And so he ended up marrying this other lady, having a couple kids. That lady was a friend of my mom's. And there was zero drama around it at all. And everybody got along. And then Thanksgiving was either me going to San Francisco or I'm sorry, to L.A. to be with my dad's family. Or is me going up to Whale Gulch in, 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 in sort of northwest Mendocino, southern Humboldt, right there in the Lost Coast for Thanksgiving with my mom and, and her partner. Um And then when we had our first kid, I said, yo, fuck all that. Okay. I'm not driving seven hours in this direction or four and a half hours in this direction. I'm doing Thanksgiving. And so we started hosting Thanksgiving. The moment we had our first kid, our first kid became sort of the nucleus of the, of the family. And I was like, look, I'd rather clean than travel. And so we've hosted Thanksgiving most years for the last, you know, our daughter's 15 and and my wife and I now, like, have you ever seen two people, um, ice skating and the guy throws the woman and she jumps and she triple letses but she makes it look like it was nothing. Like she was floating through the air, but you know, she has to have quads of steel just to <laughs> even get up that high. So like, that's how my wife and I do Thanksgiving. Like we have got this thing down from the gravy to the bright, to the this, to the that. So we've really, really enjoyed Thanksgiving and we've had thanksgivings where my dad my mom m1 and m2 are there and and it's it's always been really cool and really fun we've even gone on camping trips with them and like so it's totally cool and and what i'm extra grateful for is like i never had that stepdad dynamic i never had to look at some guy and go you're not my dad you know because i don't look at my second mom and go you're not my mom because my mom's right there right m1 yeah. m2 so it, it it's very much a, you know i think an experience that is reflective of. Uh, Again, where I was raised and the the era in which I was raised.
1: I love that story, man. that That's such a that's such a diverse, happy because you know people in uh, in Alabama are sitting there saying, "Oh no, look at this guy!" and uh, you know, and you're telling a beautiful story that family family is all about love and it doesn't matter how you identify and what. I, I just love that because there's a lot of people who have. "Quote unquote," traditional families—they hate each other. They would never sit at a Thanksgiving dinner together. So it doesn't matter. It's a great story. Um, music. I wanted to ask you before we wrap up, and I, I go into my regular uh, questions. I ask my guests, "How did you get into music promotion?" And uh, very was good it, question. It was, electro, it was electronic music, right? Like EDM yeah, so type of I stuff. Went, before I, there was such a thing as EDM.
2: No, it was daring EDM. So here's what <laughs> happened, right? Uh-huh. I When I went back down to San Francisco for high school, I auditioned to get into school of the arts. There was only five of them in the country, New York, Texas, Los Angeles, San Francisco. I went to school of the arts. I had to audition. I majored in theater by PE credits. I was doing ballroom dancing and learning how to fence. You know, I was reading Shakespeare and, and, and I remember my teacher, the head of the theater department saying, don't forget, they call it showbiz, not show art. And I thought that is terrible. I don't want to be in this for the business. I want to be in it for the art. And I don't want to spend the next four years waiting tables in New York and doing unquestionable things on the casting couch just to work my way up the Hollywood ladder or to be in, you know, uh, some sort of performance. And so I I knew right as I exited high school that I would rather sell a lot of cannabis where the rejection was very low and the profit was decent than to crawl my way up a show biz not show art paradigm I was like yeah that doesn't sound so good to me um and 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 so i also knew at some point that i'd rather be the concert promoter than the lead singer like that i would rather run stuff and i was motivated better or worse power control and influence but that i didn't necessarily want to be in the spotlight and some of that was i think consistent with being an unregulated cannabis legacy cannabis where yes the spotlight's good but too much spotlight not so good right and so so i i went to a couple events and i was absolutely astonished that there was a place where thousands of people would get together where there were no drunken fights or brawls and where the majority of the people if they were on anything were on a a a chemical that made them want to love everybody but that there wasn't any violence. And again, growing up in a really pretty rough neighborhood in San Francisco, that really appealed to me. And then when I found out that you could produce these events and that they could be an extension of your creative self and that you could book the lineup and the production value and the lasers and the light shows and make props and that I could take all that creative juice that I didn't have an outlet for. And I could create events and experiences for other people where I got to do that, but I didn't ever take a victory lap. And that I also got to laugh my way to the bank in the sense that when they were well attended, it was very profitable for me. I was like, now this is a show biz that I can get into. And so over the course of a handful of years, many years, I executive produced 18, 19 events from the concourse and the gallery of the Maritime Hall in San Francisco to as far away from San Francisco as Angels Camp in the Sierra Foothills, Phoenix Theater, all of these. I even did one at the Sony Metreon Theater. They had this huge Where the Wild Things story animatronic Mm -hmm. set at the Sony Metreon Theater in San Francisco. And I hired the best sound company in all of Northern California. And we ran this thing till five in the morning and like lasers flying through. And like, so the whole thing was just so exciting. And I've always wanted to be a part of exciting new movements and opportunities. And then I just also really liked the music too. And so I really liked house music and i always really wanted to make sure that i was showcasing house music drum and bass and trance and that as a production company we weren't relegated to a specific subsection of edm and then i just liked it i mean i like literally had people come up to me and say i met my fiance at your first event i proposed to her at your fifth event and we like took our whole wedding party to your ninth event you know and like I mean, I'm still friends with those people on Facebook. Like That gets me right here. I've never gotten rid of those goosebumps. So I really do love music. I just um, decided that I would rather be involved and not in the spotlight.
1: Are are you still doing events? Is that still a passion? I'm not,
2: but, but everything I learned in event management, I was able to parlay into a career that took me to where I'm at because I went from running my own shows to being hired to run other people's shows and being flown to Vegas for EDC to run their stage or being flown to LA for go ventures to run the hip hop stage or being flown, you know, going to Miami music festival and being involved in, you know, whatever it was ultra or these other sort of things. And then took that, that sort of event management stuff. And then I was flown all around the country to do these import auto shows as the sort of rave scene collapsed with the tech crunch and college students didn't have enough money to do their laundry and go hear live music or electronic music. And so, all of that event management stuff was what I parlayed into regulated or into real estate, right? Coordinating the home inspection, the pest inspection, the dealing with the lender. It was really no different than a vendor load in, load out schedule and a technical writer. It was just a very different industry. And so it's interesting because my professional skill set was developed in the music industry, but the skills are not music related. Yeah. And I was able to parlay that not only into real estate, but also in a regulated cannabis and consulting.
1: I, I think we should do a festival together.
2: That'll be fun. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we've got that we've got the Emerald Cup award ceremony going on in Richmond in about what is it, a month, month and a half. And so I always look at these either, you know, whether we're talking about MJ Biz or the Emerald Cup, I always look at these events through a different lens because I've done them before. How well are they thought out? Is the line wrapping around? Did they have enough staff? Did they, how was the food relative to the cost of the ticket? Those kinds of things. And I also look at the programming because I think of content and programming at some of these events the way I thought about programming with the music. And so um until very recently, you know, over the last couple of years, I was involved when NCIA would get all their panel submissions for their events. I would look at what was proposed and like. Which ones make sense? How do you sort of act as like a, a content sommelier? And 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 I think events, you know, now that we're mostly post-COVID, um, you know, I'm bullish on events. I'm bullish on people getting together. Cannabis is inherently, I think, a social exercise. It's communal, of course, yeah. Absolutely. And so is, I think, the regulated industry. And just comparing best notes, best practices, file sharing, yeah. what works, what didn't, especially in policy, because I'm watching these new states or newer regulated states, come online. And as much as these regulators are doing their best to compare notes and to extrapolate those lessons learned, what worked, what didn't from other markets, I'm still seeing these avoidable replication of policy missteps. And it sucks for the operators and for the industry, but it gives people like myself who've been here more than a minute or participated in more mature markets, a competitive advantage. Because when we go into these new markets, it's like we have a time machine. We're going back in time and we have all those lessons learned from more mature markets. And we're like, watch out for that pitfall. Watch out for that. Hey, this might not seem like a thing, but 18 months from now, you're going to go from scarcity to price compression in this category. What are we going to do to build that into the model?
1: 100%. Okay. So I'm going to ask you some questions. I
2: ask all my
1: guests. Fire first one, the first one is please describe your first
2: experience with cannabis. So- My parents consumed cannabis in front of me and my dad used to roll joints. And I remember pretending to be an adult and pretending to shave. And back when you would shave, there was these razors you'd put in, you'd screw the thing and it would close. So he would take the razor out and I would put the soap on and I would pretend to shave like dad did. And I remember him rolling joints and I would pretend to roll a joint like dad did. And I would just roll a couple zigzags and then pretend like I was my dad. I actually smoked cannabis the first time in a way that I would not endorse and I think is absolutely a perfect example of a social experiment gone wrong. I went to the 29th Street Community Feminist Daycare Center and at four and a half years old, some stupid fucking counselor sat a bunch of kids around like in a circle like Duck, Duck, Goose and passed us a joint. And when my dad found out, he almost beat the shit out of that person, obviously with love and kindness and mindful compassion, but he was like, what the (laughs) heck are you doing? So my first experience with cannabis was sanctioned by somebody who didn't have the authority to decide when an age restricted product should be introduced. Later on in junior high, I went to a junior high where the eighth graders were up here and I was a fifth grader. And they were like, I said, hey, I can get my dad's stash, you guys want a little bit like a kind of you know low self-esteem, maybe try to buy my way into like a an older social group by you know providing some of the uh inputs for our skateboarding yeah. experience. Um and so I probably started consuming cannabis not probably far younger than I would want my children to. Um, and, uh, I don't think that that served me. And I think the science is in that. That's not good and acceptable. Hey, look, if you've got epilepsy, we're not talking about that. I'm not talking about medical. I'm talking about recreational. Um, and so then after that, you know, because of my mom's cultivation, you know, cannabis, even when they would hide it from me, I always knew where it was. Right. So it was a thing. So, you know, early on in junior high and then even in high school, um, you know, I I consumed more cannabis than I would want my children to consume at that age. Although there were other substances that were around that I chose to participate in less or not at all compared with a lot of my other peers, because the cannabis felt like it was, you know, rebellious enough that it satisfied that, 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 that that part
1: Uh, do you remember the very first concert that
2: you ever attended of course what was that men at work greek theater berkeley i was nine and a half ten years old who can it be now and then very quickly i recognized i needed to up my cool quotient and the very next concert same year was acdc cow palace san francisco flick of the switch and my parents brought me to these concerts. My dad was like, okay, I'm gonna sit up there and read a book because I'm a professor and put some earmuffs on. I'm like, I'm going down the mosh pit. So I've tried to do that for my children as well pre-COVID. I'm like, oh, you want to go here, Sean Mendez at the Oakland Coliseum? Great. Oh, you want to go like because that live music experience, especially with the increase in production value that they've been able to sort of really ratchet up over the last couple decades. Um yeah, yeah, my first my first concert was met at work.
1: What what was the last concert that you attended?
2: The ones with my kids sean mendez or whatever well i mean look if if we're talking a live pa yes but if we're talking about just going out to hear music i was out last saturday night listening to dj garth in santa rosa who is an amazing amazing dj who has 30 plus years spinning the you know the decks of steel and who just happened to be in my backyard last weekend and and, you know i do the i do the i do the wet noodle like i maybe can't (laughs) dance but at least i'm on time to you know my not dancing is at least synchronized to the beat and 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 went out with a bunch of guy friends and had a great time
1: cool all right so you have one year you can only listen to five albums what albums would they be? Now, I'm gonna preface this. If you don't remember the name of the album, that's fine, just who the band is and uh, um, or whatever descriptor you want, but five, five
2: albums for next year. So it's really unfair that you don't prepare your guests with these questions in advance. I,
1: I don't I do that for a reason. I'll I tell know you what. you do?
2: You're calculating. I'll tell you,
1: no, because tomorrow my list could change too. I know it's a dynamic thing. So I'm capturing a moment in time, whatever flows in now.
2: All right, so I'm first I'm going to go into categories, right? I'm going to say I need a reggae album, a hip-hop album, a heavy metal album, you know, sort of like go like that. I would probably say that Bob Marley Legends needs to be in there. I would also say that I probably would take like an older Scorpions or Judas Priest album. Maybe it was Def Leppard Pyromania. Maybe I would say Scorpions Love It first thing or even something earlier. And then for Judas Priest, I mean, Screaming for Vengeance, you know, Rob Halford is just, I mean, you know, he was like, uh, he was, he, he, I can't, I can't even put it to words. He still is. He's, yeah. a, he's an incredible singer still. And I've seen him. Fucking incredible. incredible. Then I think I would have to add in a hip hop album. I would probably go to like the early nineties, late eighties. I'm obviously dating myself. I'm not into this mumble rap or some of these, some new genres just don't do it for me before 6 9 was a rat. I took my daughter to a concert and I still didn't get it. I wanted to get it, but I didn't. So I would probably add in something like an NWA album. You know, I'm not looking for uplifting stuff. I kind of like the gangster rap and all the terrible and, you know, terrible lyrics. Um, And then uh, I, I would probably, I'd probably have to add in like a sixties rock album too, like a Jimi Hendrix, you know, um, I mean so my wife's father was a studio drummer for Hendrix but before I met my wife you know Hendrix was music that it took me a minute to get used to and then I started to really really like it and so I feel like some of that sort of explorative sort of acid rock of that era um yeah just it would have to be in there and then if i was going to finally like round it out i probably have gone six or seven albums i probably need like an electronic album and again because music is so deeply related to periods in our life i would say the band hybrid which was mm-hmm. three guys live pa or semi-live and who did amazing progressive sort of on that line between house and trance Mm. You know, and if it wasn't them, it would have to be like a Mark Farina or a bad boy Bill or somebody who could just give me like a really Latin influenced house beat, something I could shake my margarita to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Love it, man. That's great. Um, What has cannabis meant in your life?
2: Cannabis has given me great opportunity, but it's come with a great price. I don't think of cannabis as a motivational tool for children under 25. I think there are choices I made along the way that were not positively impacted by my early cannabis usage. What cannabis has done in my life has given me a black eye and it's given me a a badge, right? And having gone through those experiences, the challenge for me has been to both embrace that and also to say that's not who I am. That's what I've been through. And so that black eye obviously is, is being justice involved in a way that you never get rid of that. Like, I don't care what expungement clinic you want to invite me to as long as the internet exists and we're in an information age, expungement doesn't matter anymore. And like, you know, how hard is it when my kid has come home and said, I think that kid doesn't want that. That kid's parents don't want me to be friends with them because you made the newspaper dad. Like that just kills me. Fuck
1: those parents because uh, there's nothing wrong with cannabis. Yes, the law was fucked up, but you did nothing wrong. So You don't don't want kids friends with those kids anyway.
2: When you have the triumvirate of drugs, guns, and money in the same location and it gets splashed on the headlines and no reporter ever calls you for your side of the the story and they're not fact-checking, they're cut and pasting from a prosecutorial statement that is in fact theatrical and grandstanding, it's hard to fight against that. But what cannabis has also done for me has given me an education and a training that you cannot get at Oaksterdam. You cannot get from Greenflower. You cannot go get from one of these educational seminars. And so understanding controlled environment agriculture and the science of cannabis, and then using my participation in regulated cannabis to sort of have a self-directed MBA program in business development and emerging industries and highly regulated opportunities um, what cannabis has given me is a chance to um, to be good at something that's not easy to be good at. And then the most important thing that cannabis has given me, and it's going to make me a little verklempt to say it, but it's the truth, Len. My parents were committed to social justice and societal change way before this was ever a thing. My dad was doing voter registration of impoverished and communities of color in the south as a college student in the years that those college students were getting killed for doing that okay he was chased by the kkk they were shot at in car chases you know a little ivy league kid born in you know pittsburgh and raised in in la i grew up in a not wealthy neighborhood by a not wealthy uh family and i chased paper initially and 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 saw that gap between the haves and the have-nots getting wider during my 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 upbringing. And there was a period of my to- of my life where I was not selfless enough. I didn't do things just to do the right thing. I didn't put the capital A in altruism. I felt like it was a you got to get it. It's a rat race, and you got to go get yours and make your name and carve out your opportunity. The opportunity to serve. On committees and to do policy work with CCIA, with NCIA, with SCGA, with SCCA, and with a recent invitation from CIWA, that opportunity to do policy work for nothing at the expense of billable hours, at the expense of not taking my son fishing, at the expense of them saying, well, wait a second, you're Jewish, you're not colored enough. Or wait a second, you're a white, straight male. You, you maybe, are you sure? Are you sure you get to have a place in this conversation about diversity? We want to test who, what does allyship look like? And and, and are you making sure that you're being a good ally, but not taking the spotlight and not taking the opportunity for somebody who may have some of those other criteria, you know, in their upbringing or in their identity or what have you, and to work in policy around the conversation of social equity in cannabis for eight years, well, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. 20, 20. I mean, like, yeah, I, I literally need my first for eight years. Um, is probably the thing that I've done that has probably made my parents the proudest because it's finally me accepting the baton, although this time the baton's a vape pen, but it's still a baton, <laughs> okay, and taking that baton and saying, like, this is where I'm gonna try to make a difference without it being about me, and where I've done it consistently, persistently, obnoxiously, just being a a small part of those conversations and trying to move the world, you know, in the right direction, like that, that opportunity that cannabis has provided me, and that understanding that I know that I had a disproportionately beneficial outcome in the criminal justice system, And that that doesn't give me white guilt, but it gives me an obligation to try to at least be a part of leveling the playing field in all ways. I'm so proud of being a small part of that work and being consistent. I remember the first year the National Cannabis Industry Association had a social equity committee, and I was the only verified social equity applicant on that committee, not because I'm the poster child of social equity but because I was right there in the beginning and I became the community organizer of that committee the first year. Why? Still, so I was the only person who showed up with a laptop. I said, I'll take yeah. notes, <laughs> but I believe in being prepared. I believe in leading our heart. I believe in being a part of the solve. And I believe in also not trying to be still in the spotlight or always being the person who's, you know, in the position of prominence or leadership. And so cannabis has provided me an opportunity through policy work to try to make the world a better place a safer place, a more equitable place, and to provide opportunities for the communities that already paid the price for underregulated yeah. or unregulated cannabis. And so, like I just saw that thing, you know, the founder of Jerry Ben and Jerry's, you know, is, is standing up a cannabis brand, and all the money is is going go to go to black people. And yeah. and now that's great, okay. And I will say on this podcast. What I've said many times before, which is there is no regulated cannabis, at least in California, without gay men dying, brown labor, and black culture. And so my hope for the next Ben and Jerry's brand is that they acknowledge some of these other portions or spectrums or definitions of diversity, because it, it, it is it is more than just what those the recipients of that brand are um and 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 so you know I, I think that i think i think cannabis policy can be a change agent for broader conversations about how we write some of the wrongs without feeling guilty about it because the only apology that matters is a change of behavior i'm not going to live in what didn't work in this country i'm just going to say like what do we do to make it right how do we balance that
1: all right final question and by the way like really really impactful statement so i appreciate you sharing that uh a little a little lighter subject. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. And I know you had multiple rooms, multiple houses, so you pick whatever you think is going to be the I, most. Uh,
2: I often had a loft, so maybe that's in San Francisco. These old Victorians and things like that. I often had a loft, but I all I I often had a loft. My parents made me a raised platform for sleeping on. Sometimes I had a desk underneath. I often painted them to my liking i mean when prince was a thing i had a lavender bedroom okay i just didn't have his gal gu- his honda Gullwing, wing and i didn't have the dairy curl but i was like hey let's party like it's 1999 um later on i sponge painted my entire room a cognac color and so um my rooms were not necessarily always organized um but my room always had uh, examples of what i was into uh, whether it was music, whether I was I was in sports, but I was on the swim team, so you don't have a lot. So, of so you had, for that. so
1: you had, you had posters uh, or no?
2: I had posters? '60s posters because my parents were hippies, and they had this friend who was a memorabilia collector who gave me like original Led Zeppelin posters from oh, wow. the '70s and Jimi Hendrix posters, like things that were worth a gazillion dollars. And just said, you know, you're a cute kid. Oh, you like the music that I like. Here you go. Boom, boom, boom. So I had all these amazing posters. I didn't have any of those like hairband posters i had like this memorabilia from the early 70s late 60s of janice joplin and all the monterey you know uh concerts and and like all this stuff and so i had a very colorful walls both with the paint color and the posters and and my room my rooms well i was into music so you know i'd have the keyboard and the electric guitar and you know i'd sit in my chair and you know back then we didn't have cell phones or headsets so we talked to our girlfriends forever and maybe we'd play a little song for them maybe they would say it was a great song maybe they wouldn't maybe they were serious maybe they weren't but it was still coming from me and so i usually had an amplifier or two a keyboard a guitar uh and a loft
1: cool awesome brother uh, I want to thank you so much for being on. Where can people engage with you? Where can they find you on social, website, email, whatever you want to
2: share? Yeah, so my consulting has been word of mouth through cannabis attorneys, cannabis CPAs up until the end of last year when I finished this director of real estate position that was 18 months of drinking out of a fire hose at a startup. Yeah. So I will have a website here in the next X number of days. It's called YKSTC which stands for Yaro Kubrin Special Teams Consulting. Special Teams Consulting is my sole prop consultancy. I'm an army of one. It's just me and what I know. And that'll be up in a second. Where I really hang out is LinkedIn, right? Because I think it's like Instagram for guys my age. I'm like, I'm an influencer minus the bathing suit, maybe. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. And so I'm on Instagram, Yaro Lee Kubrin. I'm on Facebook, Yaro Kubrin. I'm on LinkedIn, Yara Lee Kubrin, and really where I where I where I find myself most easily accessible to people is on LinkedIn. I check my messages on a regular basis, and LinkedIn is a platform that I feel is pretty cannabis friendly, and that's why you know people can also see your podcast and the content you create, whether it's spinning records or spinning yarns or talking to somebody else, you know. And LinkedIn seems to be a place that's 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 not at least anti cannabis. So if people want to find me, they can find me on LinkedIn, Yarrow Kubrin. Awesome. Brother, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Len. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.